0: Now I'm going to ask you all to turn in your Bibles to the book of Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. going to read from verse 3 to verse 11. Our text for today is verse 9 through 11, but I'd like to give us the full context. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, and indeed the whole world, and is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption for the forgiveness of sins. Amen. So verse 9 through 11 will be our text today. And uh, we'll be looking at the content, the continued content of Paul's prayer for the Colossian church. But before we expound the prayer of the apostle Paul, let us pray ourselves. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Almighty God, once again for bringing us here together to gather for corporate worship. Oh Lord, we we acknowledge this great privilege we have, and uh, what a blessing it is to uh, be in the Spirit on the Lord's Day to worship you in spirit and truth and out to hear your word and we pray father that you give us ears to hear and hearts to understand and minds to comprehend what it is you are revealing to us today i ask O lord holy spirit that you would anoint my mind my heart and my lips as i speak that i speak forth your word O father god i pray for your empowerment i pray for your strength and i pray for your anointing lord i cannot do this only you can do it only you can speak through me and speak to the hearts of your people. I pray that as we sit here today that we would be transformed and renewed in the image of your glorious Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. We had a prayer time downstairs before service and it was a blessing to be part of that. I encourage you all to join us on Sunday mornings before service. Um, as Christians, prayer is one of the vital components of our lives. And uh, as Christians, we learn that it is our communication or our means of communication with God. How do we communicate with God? We don't send him text messages or emails, but we have this privilege called prayer. It is it is our means of directly communicating with God. Well, does he hear me? Of course he does. God is omnipresent. Um, God can hear the prayers of all of his people all the time at every place throughout all eternity. Nothing escapes the understanding and knowledge of God. And it's because of this privilege of prayer that we can go to God. It is a, it is, we can lay our burdens and cares before him. The writer of Hebrews tells us that when we pray, we come boldly to the throne of grace. And that means there's a sense of of confidence that when we come to the throne of our Father, that he will hear us and that he cares for us. There are many different ways we pray. There are many different types of prayers. There are general prayers. These are the kind of prayers we pray when we wake up. Lord, give us grace through the day when we pray over our food or when we pray when we go to bed and thanking God for the day and confessing our sins. There are Corporate prayers and public prayers, how we pray when we open a worship service or uh, when someone's taking an offering. These are prayers that are said on behalf of a corporate congregation, and so they have a distinct character. We are often guided through prayer in our personal lives through the acronym ACTS, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. And then also, we know that in our prayer life, there is intercession. This is where we pray for the needs of others, where we think and consider how those in our midst have particular things going on in their lives and how we can intercede on their behalf. This prayer here is a prayer of intercession. Paul is interceding on behalf of the Colossian church. It begins as a prayer of thanksgiving, but goes into a a prayer of intercession now, and it's interceding on their behalf and what he's praying for. For them. This prayer is instrumental for us in two ways. It shows us not only how we should pray for one another in our intercession, but it also teaches us the goals of Christian life. What are the things that really matter? What are the things that are important? What are the things we should be praying for? Perhaps we need a new perspective on intercessory prayer. Now, don't get me wrong, there's nothing praying, wrong with praying for people who are sick or praying for people who are struggling through a different trial. But overall, when we pray for one another, do we pray with a sense, a high sense of calling on as Christians and how we're to live our lives? It was John Lloyd Ogilvie who defined inter- intercessory prayer not as us putting our burdens on God, but God putting his burdens on our hearts. Let's begin by unpacking these verses. The first thing we want to look at in verse 9 is the parameters of intercession. The parameters of intercession. Who do we pray for? Why do we pray? And how do we pray? These are the parameters of intercession. In verse 9, Paul says, And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. We have not ceased to pray for you since the day we heard, okay? So what we learn first of all, is the connecting phrase of why they're praying. The reason why they're Paul and Timothy, and I say they, it's because we have have not ceased to pray for you, is what Paul says, is bound up in the connecting phrase, and so. And the NASB gives us a better translation of that phrase, and it says, for this reason, we also, since the day we heard of it, have not ceased to pray for you. For this reason links everything that precedes verse 9 and verses 3 through 8. It is the report that Paul has heard from Epaphras regarding the life of the Colossian church, how they receive the gospel and how the gospel is flourishing and people are getting saved and how they're growing in faith and love and are grounded in hope. This is a cause for thanksgiving, but it is also a cause for intercession, while it may seem that the good report may not be a cause for intercession, it is the cause, it is, it is the catalyst. Far from being complacent, he is praying for them because of what he has heard. And this brings to us the necessity of praying for other Christians, especially if we see The gospel succeeding in their lives, especially if we see our brothers and sisters growing in the grace of knowledge, even more reason to pray for them. Yes, we should pray for the weak. Yes, we should pray for those who are struggling. Yes, we should pray for those who are not doing well. But even more so, let us pray for those who are growing, who are strong, who are succeeding. Why? Because Satan is aware of their growth. Satan is aware of their successes and there's nothing more the enemy would like to do than to destroy that work. And that's evident in what's happening in Colossae. The basis of this letter is that worldly philosophies have taken captive the minds of the people here. Yes, they're Christians and they're growing and they're loving and they're, they're developing their faith, but they're also being taken captive and, and, and seduced by a lot of vain philosophies and worldly, view, worldly views within the church. Remember this, brothers and sisters, Satan's mission is to steal, kill, and destroy. And when he sees the work of God in someone's life, when someone's growing and developing and strengthening, you could bet your bottom dollar Satan's got a bullseye on that person's back. And you know it yourself. Think of your own life. When you're growing and as a Christian, when you're doing the right thing, when you're, when you're committing yourself more to God, Don't you feel the heat of the devil right on you? Don't the circumstances in your life just seem to challenge you to bring you down again? The powers of darkness are around us. So when we hear of the success and growth of other Christians, it should be even more of a reason to pray for them. I'll never forget what a brother told me years ago. Satan is like a pirate. He goes after the ship with the most gold. And when he sees the the purified gold of sanctification in the heart and life of a believer, he'll be on your tail. Secondly, who is Paul praying for? He is praying for the church of Colossae. That's evident. But think about this. He's praying for a church in whom he most likely never met these people. He knows none of their names. He knows none of their faces. He never stepped foot in this church. He's never been in their midst. And if he went there, he wouldn't recognize anyone. Yet he tells them, I am praying for you. We are praying for you since we've heard of what God is doing in your work and in your midst. You know, when we get mission reports from missionaries overseas, when Brother Caleb Jabello was here recently sharing with us all the work going on, that should give us more reason to pray for the people there We should be praying and when we hear reports about how God is moving in churches in other parts of the world or even here in our own country, when we hear about God's working in in different churches in our network, it should spur us on to pray for them more, even though we've never seen them or, or we don't know people's names or we've never attended church there. There's a sense of that communion like we talked about in our confession that mutual abiding in Christ that we should be desirous to pray for them and commit to pray for the continued success and growth of the gospel. I'm not jealous when other churches do well. What are we in a competition here? When churches do well and they grow, it fills me with joy and we pray for the continued success and growth and God's grace and protection upon those people. Paul says, we pray for them without ceasing. This tells us how often we should pray. Now, again, this term without ceasing, which is also used in 1 Thessalonians 5, uh, should remind us that this doesn't mean that Paul is praying 24-7 without stop. He's not walking around and praying without, you know, a pause. It means that Paul prays regularly and consistently. There's a pattern of prayer. It's a discipline in his life. And what he's saying to them is that In my regular prayer life, I have added you to the list and I pray for you regularly. One time, a brother came up to me some time ago and said to me, Bob, do you know I pray for you every day? I was humbled by that. I was humbled by that. And I felt ashamed because I did not pray for this brother every day. And so it's a... It's something we don't know who's praying for us. We don't know whose prayer list we're on. But we ought to, I think what it encourages us to do is I say, gee, I can't remember all the people I have to pray for. Well, make a prayer list. Open up the notes application on your cell phone because that's the way we do things today. Or if you're old fashioned, just get a notebook and write down who you want to pray for. As you hear of needs develop, make a list Check it twice and pray, pray, pray. I can't emphasize enough how important prayer is within the church, how we, not only do we need the prayers of others, but we need to pray for one another. As we pray for one another, it'll strengthen our spiritual walk. It gets us out of ourselves too, and it matures our faith. So often our prayers are are me-centered, It's about what I need, what I want. God, hear me out. This is my need, my desire, my problem. And we spend so much time about us. And God wants us to get out of the focus, out of ourselves and pray for others. As you learn to pray for others, you will become more selfless. You will will die to self and be more Christ-like in your prayer life and in your walk. Number two. have the parameters of intercession the second part of our message is the subject of intercession the subject of intercession so what is paul praying for he says i'm asking he's asking god that you the church may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so this is the prayer the prayer is that you would be Filled with all knowledge, with spiritual wisdom and understanding. This is a good prayer. And it's a prayer we should be praying for one another. Because if you look around you at the way things are today, it is clear there is a lack of the knowledge of God. What in God saying, Hosea 4, 6, my people perish for lack of knowledge there could be nothing there my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge this is what happens when society wants to snuff out God it's what happens when secular society says the uh, the separation of church and state means keep your keep your church business in your four walls and don't bring it out into the public forum we don't want it the light diminishes and darkness takes over. And when darkness takes over, oh, how dark it could be. And what's even worse is that we see not only is there a, a lack of knowledge in a general sense of society. When I say a general sense of society, you go back in a time machine 150 years ago, there was a general sense of the knowledge of God in society. People knew what was right and wrong and moral and immoral. Not today. Today, it's as if there is all-out rebellion against God. If God says something is right, society says we will double down and offend you, God. We'll do it our way. But what about the church? There is such a lack of knowledge in the church. Uh, Recently, Ligonier Ministries, and they do this every couple of years, they do a, a poll, a survey, and they survey. They, they hire a company they they, they do a, a research on different, and this is evangelical Christians. Large percentages of Christians do not know the Bible. They do not believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God. Large amounts of professing Christians do not believe or understand what the Trinity is. Large amounts of Christians believe that you can get to heaven uh, just by being a good person. There is so much of a biblical illiteracy in the evangelical church today. People will follow any trend, any any smooth-talking speaker who's got a big megachurch or a public ministry on TV. They don't have a knowledge of God and his will. And so Paul is praying that God would fill the church with knowledge and spiritual wisdom, and understanding. See, at the end of this, it's knowing God's will. It's not just knowledge for the sake of knowledge. Right? Anyone could go to seminary and accumulate knowledge, but it's knowledge that you may know the will of God. And God's will always implies moral and ethical implications. How do you live your life? What are the guards of my life? Well, it's all revealed in God's word. God's will is revealed in his word. It's contained all the knowledge we need to know about God is contained in his word. Now, in the Old Testament, if one wanted to know the will of God, he looked to the law. But in the New Covenant, we look to Christ. Christ is the sum of all the knowledge of God. Now, in the Bible, knowledge, wisdom, and understanding all go together. It's like a triad, and you see it often. It is often emphasized that leaders in Israel have knowledge and wisdom and understanding. And and these are three things that not only we should pray for, for the church and for one another, for ourselves, that we would grow in knowledge and wisdom and understanding. And notice the adjective spiritual wisdom, because there's the wisdom of the world, right? Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 1, the Greeks seek wisdom. What kind of wisdom? Worldly wisdom. I'm not talking about worldly wisdom. We're talking about spiritual wisdom. It's the ability to take God's knowledge, the knowledge of the word, the knowledge of his will, and apply it to our lives. Living out the knowledge of God. Listen to Proverbs chapter 2, verse 1-6. through 6. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments within you, make your ear attentive to wisdom. Incline your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, you will seek it like silver and search for its hidden treasures. Then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find. The knowledge of God. Listen, for the Lord gives wisdom and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Oh man, the basis of all this is the fear of the Lord. That's wisdom and knowledge and understanding. And when you have fear of God, you will seek him like someone who seeks a treasure you will passionately pursue God, and he will graciously give you wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. He's provided this for us in Christ. All the knowledge and, and wisdom and understanding are contained within the person of Christ. In Isaiah eleven two, when the prophet Isaiah prophesies and, and foretells of the coming of Messiah, He says this, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And it was this very verse that Christ quoted in the synagogue. This is me. I am the one. That's why Paul could say later in Colossians 2, 3, we are told that in Christ... In Christ is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In 1 Corinthians 1 30 through 31, we are told, Because of him you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption, so that as it is written, Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. What is this telling us? If you want knowledge and wisdom and understanding of life, you need to know Jesus Christ. You need to have a relationship. There is no other knowledge that matters. Let him who boasts, boasts this, that he knows the Lord. It is only a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and knowing him that brings about such knowledge and wisdom. 1 Corinthians 2 tells us that when we have the filling of the Spirit, we have the mind of Christ. It is God who fills us with this knowledge. We need refills from time to time. And that refilling is through the filling of the spirit. And Christ reveals himself through the word. And that's where we get the refill. Colossians 3.16 says this, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Soak it in, absorb it, let it dwell in you richly to to saturate every part of your mind and your heart, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. I got to tell you, there's, there's, there's this movement where You know, people say, well, we don't need knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, knowledge puffs up, love edifies. And there's this movement away from knowledge where we're, let's just do social work and, and, you know, the social gospel. And, And let me just make it clear to you, the Bible places a premium on knowledge, but it's the right knowledge. It's knowledge of God and his will with all spiritual wisdom and understanding, the ability to carry it out, The more we learn about Christ, the more we will have wisdom and understanding. There are two main reasons for this. Not only is it for knowing how to live in the world, but also for discerning false doctrine. The Colossians were being affected by a lot of vain philosophies, a lot of ideas that were contrary to the gospel. The way we counteract that is by having a a a, a solid foundation of knowledge and wisdom of god 's word. listen to ephesians four thirteen through fourteen It talks about uh, how God has given gifts to men so that we can be built up until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro for the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. The more you are grounded in, in the truth and in God's word and in true knowledge and wisdom and the fear of the Lord, you will not be drifting along with every wave of doctrine. Let me tell you something. Every five years there's some new trend, there's a new wave, and, and it's really just something old with a new dressing on it. And I gotta tell you, if you're not grounded, people, I've seen so many people swept away by every little wave and wind of doctrine because they don't want to study the word. They don't want to grow in knowledge. So we need to pray, pray for one another that we would grow and be filled with the knowledge of the will of God. Well, what is the goal of all this? That's the big question, right? But the end game is not just to become smart, Right? You can have all the knowledge in the world and all you are is a smart sinner. That knowledge has to change you. It has to have an effect on you. That's the purpose of knowledge. So what does Paul say here? It says in verse 9 or verse 10, so, or because, or therefore, so that... So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. The reason why we want to be filled with the knowledge of the will of God is so that we may walk a life, to live a life worthy of the Lord. So we may be pleasing to God, bearing fruit and increasing in knowledge. These four things all are, uh, uh, make up one, one whole, and that is living righteously. I think the concept of pleasing God would, would kind of be above all of that, living a life that pleases God. See, your life, how you live is either going to please God, you're either going to live to please others, or you're going to live to please yourself. God, others, or self. Usually self is at the center. We'll talk about it in a minute. But, but pleasing God means that we have a desire and a delight to please him. It gives us joy. We want to make God happy with us. Though, as a Christian who's born again as the Spirit of God, you do not want God's displeasure. You want God, you want to please your Father. And why not after all he's done for us? So that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. I I want you to think about this phrase for a minute. To to, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. To walk simply means how you live your life, your lifestyle. How you proceed from day to day. And this this phrase, there's similar... uh, Examples within the New Testament in Pauline writings of how he expresses this. For instance, in Philippians one twenty-seven, he says, "Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ." In Ephesians four eleven or four one, he says, "Therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called." Or First Thessalonians two twelve, Paul exhorts the church to walk in a manner worthy of God so this exhortation is a is common in Paul's writings but here it's not the gospel of Christ that to walk in a manner worthy of not in your calling and not of God but it says in a manner worthy of the Lord the lord here is referring to the lord jesus christ and we know that because in chapter 2 verse 6 Paul says, as you received the Lord Jesus Christ, so walk in him. As you receive the Lord Jesus Christ, so walk in him. I want you to think that. Walking in a manner, living your life in a manner that is worthy of Jesus Christ. What does this word worthy mean? worthy means to have worth or value right something is is worthy but in the same sense it is more than that the meaning that is stressed here is the is the sense of saying a worthy opponent all right i if someone goes into a a a boxing ring they they want to fight someone who's of equal measure or weight to them a worthy opponent or or a workman worthy of his wages right that's used. That phrase is used in First Timothy five to describe that that someone who works hard in the gospel, who's a who's a faithful pastor, is worthy. In other words, the, his his um, his reimbursement, his his remuneration, should be an equal measure to the to the ministry that he gives. And and the ideas of equal weight, of equal measure. The word in Greek is axios. It's where we get our English word axiom. From, which means to be of equal weight. So what it is saying is that our lives should be lived in such a way that they should be of equal weight to that of the Lord Jesus Christ. As you receive the Lord Jesus Christ, so walk in him. That's a high standard, isn't it? But it's the standard we're called to. You know, we preach the gospel of grace, but the gospel of grace doesn't lower the standard. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of grace called us to the standard of the Lord himself. The whole point of Colossians is, is, is it's all about Christ. Christ just bleeds through every passage here. We are in Christ. Christ is in us, the hope of glory. And in Christ, we want to live and walk in him. John doesn't say much different from Paul in 1 John two four six 6, when he says this, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. The truth is not in him. Whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. That's what it means to live a life that's pleasing to God. To live like Jesus. What did the Lord say to the Pharisees in John chapter 8? I always do what's pleasing to the Father. Can you say that? I know I can't. (laughs) None of us could say that. And that's where grace comes in, right? The grace comes in to pick up that that gap. But that gap and that grace doesn't mean we continue in failure. It means we strive. We fight. We push forward. We press on and we pray, oh Lord, help me. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to him. pleasing God is, is the framework, the goal in which all of this falls under. And then the next phrase tells us what this life looks like if you're what's pleasing to God is not only walking in Christ, but it is bearing fruit in every good work. What pleases God is when we're bearing fruit in our good works. I want you to think about something because we know that the Bible is very clear. Man is saved by grace, not by works. I, I, I need not emphasize that we are all grounded in that truth that justification is by faith, not by works. There's nothing you could do. No amount of religious activity, no amount of adherence to the law, no amount of good works can get you into heaven. It is faith and trust in Christ and Christ alone, period. However, we need to be reminded that true saving faith is a living faith. It's an abiding faith. It is a faith that is active and it works through love and good works will always attend and be evidence of the work of grace in our hearts and the faith that we have in Christ. I know there was recently a big controversy with John Piper regarding this very topic. And some people misunderstood his ministry. I think he was very clear that if you, if you have faith, true saving faith, it is going to bear fruit and the fruit will be good works. Look at Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 for a moment. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, right? Grace, the word grace charis means gift. This salvation is a gift from God. It's nothing you did to earn it or I did. We don't deserve it. It is, it is, a, it is, is an act of charity from God. He gives freely. And this faith, even our faith, is not something we've offered or something that is to be commended. Any any exercise of faith on our part is a work of God's grace. It's a gift to believe. You don't believe because you're more clever or more humble than the next guy. It's because God opened your eyes and your heart to believe you were dead in your sins and trespasses. Verse nine, not as a result of works so that no man may boast. It is never of works. But notice in verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him that we should walk in them. God fashioned and molded us from, I want you to think about that. Before time existed, his elect were chosen in Christ we're prepared beforehand to walk in good works. And those good works were ordained by God. So when the good works are carried out, they testify, this is one of my elect. This is one who's placed a trust in me. Without this understanding, this balanced understanding, we're left with crusty, easy believism. Say a sinner's prayer, get baptized, go to church once in a while, live whatever way you want, you're going to heaven anyway. That's not biblical Christianity. Remember, it was the Lord Jesus in Matthew 21, verse 18 through 19. It says, in the morning he returned to city. This is Jerusalem, became hungry and seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it, but only leaves. He said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered and died. It was a, it was a, it was a, it was an, what Jesus did there was perform this miracle. It was a metaphor. It was a allegory to, to bring a judgment upon Jerusalem, upon Israel. The Jews had failed to bear fruit. The vineyard of the Lord had failed to bear fruit and it was, and just as that fig tree was dead, Israel was dead, and God had pronounced a curse on it, and he gives the parable later later of the wicked vine dressers in chapter 21, and in verse 43, he says to his apostles, therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, that is the Jews, and given to a people producing its fruits. The point is that God looks for fruits among his people. God is not tending barren trees, but in the in the field of the Lord, he is cultivating fruit-bearing trees. And when there is no fruit, God prunes the branches. John 15 tells us that. John 15, 5 through 6, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me and I in him, it is that bears much fruit for apart from me you can do nothing if anyone does not abide in me he is thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered and thrown to the fire and burned again this is all about being in Christ our communion with God our union to Christ by faith do you get it the oneness with him when two people come up to the altar to get married to become one flesh Do you know what that really is pointing us to? To Christ and the church. Ephesians 5 tells us Christ becoming one with his people. We are one with him. And the very power and the holiness and the the divinity of Christ empowers us to live out this life. And reshapes us and remolds us. We're new creations. Oh my Lord. As God's people, we please him and we bear good fruits. All of this is something we need to pray for. Pray for fruitfulness among each other. Praying that we would walk worthy of Christ. Praying that we would increase in knowledge. Notice again, a second time, Paul, now he says to pray for knowledge or pray that we increase in knowledge. It's not enough to say, Oh, I've learned all there is to know. We are in the school of grace till the day we die. Some of us may have accumulated more knowledge than others. I certainly have accumulated a lot of knowledge, but I'm not done. We have barely scratched the surface of the depths and the profundity of the gospel and of the person of Christ. We have barely reached the first rung of the ladder. Oh, the infinite glory of God. May we increase in knowledge and grow not from just being content, but to go to the next level. Satan would be very happy to keep us in our arrogance, content and complacent, not growing anymore. But he wants us to grow. Now, for some, that's a challenge because some are still in a juvenile stage of their Christian walk. They don't want to get too deep. Ah, oh, to stay in the shallow waters. You know, I I think of this imagery it was told to me years ago. But you know, there's a lot of Christians who like to play in the shallow water. They dip their toe in the water to see, oh, is it? is it too cold? I'm not going in, you know, or they, they go up to their knees and they just, you know, we need to be submerged in the Spirit of God. We need to just dive in. You know what happens when you dive in? You let the water take you. You trust in the water to bear you up. That's what we need to do, just throwing our lives into Christ, into the Spirit, growing deeper in the knowledge of Christ. Let me conclude. In our passage today, we see a robust and powerful prayer for God's people. It reminds us how we ought to intercede for one another. Imagine, imagine if all Christians around the world prayed for each other like this. The power we would see. But more importantly, it shapes our lives. As we pray like this, it'll teach us what's important and valuable in our own personal walks. We cannot look at this prayer, we cannot look at the sermon without thinking of the theme of living to please God. As I said, you're either living to please God, yourself, or others. And I fear that many of us are living to please ourselves. Self-pleasure is intoxicating. Self-pleasure is the theme of the world we live in. Self pleasure is the reason why sexual immorality is absolutely, rapidly rampant in our society, like never before. At the basis of it is all self pleasure, what feels good for me. Self pleasure is what dominates a greedy spirit to obtain more and more possessions. Self pleasure is what dominates a selfish person that doesn't consider the needs and and feelings of others. Christ bore for us an example. He didn't come to this world to please himself. He came to please God. You see, what is your life centered around, self or Christ? That's really the question we need to ask ourselves today. I'm afraid far too many of us have fallen into the trap of self-pleasure or hedonism, when we see the blazing glory of Christ and the goodness of Christ and, and who he is, and if we are in him and we have his spirit, we cannot stay there. Because eventually a true Christian say, I have no pleasure in this stuff. My pleasure is in Christ and Christ alone. I could tell you, those who walk in a manner displeasing to God eventually lead into disgusting God. There are certain acts the Bible says are an abomination. The word abomination means it is disgusting. Look at the world around us today, my brothers and sisters. Let us, let us not fall captive to the darkness around us, but let us yield to the light. Let the light fill us through us to others. Amen. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, I thank you for this time and this message. It's timely. We need it, Lord. We need to grow and increase in knowledge and and we need to grow in understanding and spiritual wisdom. Oh Lord, I am so thankful, Lord, that ultimately we are strengthened by you, by your mighty hand. It is through you, Jesus Christ, that we grow in knowledge, and it is through you, Jesus Christ, that we grow in spiritual wisdom and understanding. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for doing the work in our hearts. May you continue to do this work, that you may be glorified in Christ's name, amen. 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 Please stand as we sing once again.